Almighty God, Lord, you are the maker of heaven and earth. You are the maker of all things seen and unseen. And you are the one who is in charge of everything that comes to pass. You are the one who is ordering all of history to bring about your ends. And Lord, we should be awed that we are enabled to come into the presence of a God so mighty that he could speak and bring the vast universe, vaster than, than we can perceive, into existence and yet be infinitely greater than his creation. Lord, it, it would be just and right if you had nothing to do with creatures such as we, for we are not only insignificant, but we are, O oh Lord, sinful as well and rebellious. It would be a just thing if you simply judged us, but you did not. You deemed not only to stoop and lisp to us that we might understand, O oh Lord, about you and your will and ourselves, but you also sent your son Jesus into the world to die for our sins and to provide for us an atonement that we could never obtain ourselves, that we might be saved. And you've also made it possible through your son's work for us to come before you and speak to you. And we thank you also that you haven't left us in the dark about yourself and your will for our lives. You've given us your word, which is to direct us all the days of our lives. Now, Lord, I pray that you would be with me as I am teaching and that you would help me to uh, explain the teaching of the Westminster Confession. I hope uh, and pray, Lord, that our time together would be edifying and that your people would grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right. When last we met, we were talking about the development of the Westminster Confession of Faith, and specifically we were talking about the assembly that brought it about, the Westminster Assembly. Now, who can, who can remember the dates for the Westminster Assembly? Anybody? 1640? 16-something. 16 16 Very good. Okay. 1643 to 1648. That's right. 1643 to 1648, I believe it is. So... Okay. I'll take your word for it. The assembly itself was meeting where, kids? Where was it meeting? Was it meeting in a barn? Did it meet in New York? Where did it meet? Westminster, that's right. The city of Westminster, which is part of which big, gigantic city? London, the largest city in Europe, as a matter of fact. It was meeting at Westminster in London, and specifically in Westminster Abbey, in the Jerusalem Chamber. It's a pokey little chamber that's part of Westminster. So they were meeting in the pokey little room called the Jerusalem Chamber, and they worked out this, this wonderful document. Now, there were three distinguishable groups, or three main groups within that group that met there. There were Erastians, Independents, and Presbyterians. And the differences between the groups mostly had to do with church government. Today, when we get into big arguments about what Christians are to believe, it's usually over matters of soteriology or church music. That's the big one that we argue about today, worship and so on. Back then, there was a lot more unity about those issues. They weren't essentially fighting about soteriology. They would, they would occasionally differ on minor points, but that wasn't a major issue. Worship also, because they were all pressing for a reformation, also was not a big issue for them. They were all assembled because they agreed that the worship of the Episcopalian Church, that is the worship of the Church of England, was not biblical. They all agreed that all of the, the ceremonies and the rites that had been added to the church over the years had to go. So they had basic agreement in that. They wanted reformed worship. But they were not at all agreed over the principles of church government because at that point, you've got to remember, the majority of people still felt that church and state should be one. The idea that Caesar's kingdom and the church were two independent spheres was something that was not widely held throughout Europe and certainly in England. The kings, well, the king, at that time, Charles I wanted nothing to do with such an idea because who did he think was the head of the church, kids? Who did the king think was the head of the church? Yes, Victor? Yes, he thought he was the head of the church. Who is the head of the church, though, kids? Christ is the head. Christ is the head of the church. But the king felt that he was the head of the church. Now, there were three different opinions that were prevalent at that time, okay? You had the Erastians who felt that, yes, the state should be in charge of the church. 
All right. So therefore, the king should be the one who called together synods or meetings in the same way that Constantine, for instance, had convened the first council of Nicaea. The Erastians felt that the king should have the right to call synods and decide these matters. And then ultimately, when it came, when push came down to shove, that the ball should be in his court. Then there were the independents. The independents were the only major group that felt that church and state should be really separate. They also felt that each individual church should be separate. The independents can be distinguished for the, by the fact that while the independents back then felt very strongly that there should be elders and deacons, and essentially if you went into an independent church, it would look very much like a Presbyterian church. One of the things that they did not believe in, however, was the idea of connectionalism between the churches. All right, We as Presbyterians do believe that each individual congregation should be ruled by its own representatives. What do we call the representatives in a, a Presbyterian church? Elders and deacons are the other officers. They don't obviously rule, but we, we should have elders and deacons. But we should have a session made up of elders. Okay? And in the Presbyterian system, all of the churches are connected. But in the independent system, those connections don't exist. So this congregation is independent from this congregation, and the actions decided on by this congregation do not affect that particular congregation. Now, they may be brought together in a loose association. They may subscribe to a common confession, but there isn't really a connection between the various churches. Now, in the Presbyterian system, you also have graded church courts. At the lowest level, you have the session, and you have a, a regional body made up of the sessions from an entire region. Why do we call that regional body, that larger body? We've got a session, then we've got presbyteries, and then when the church gets together all at once, we call it the General Assembly. The General Assembly. Where do we find the first General Assembly? The Jerusalem Council, Acts 15. So, now... The independents were arguing, however, that there should be a common system, a common confession, but not control. There should not be courts controlling the church, that each church should be, in essence, independent, each congregation independent, and not under the control, certainly, of the state, but not forced to abide with the decisions of other churches. The independents were the smallest group at the assembly. The Erastians even were a larger group, and the Presbyterians would be the largest group at the assembly. Well, they worked on this system, and they eventually came up with a document, the Westminster Confession of Faith, that encompassed the Presbyterian system of church government. Now, the independents argued against it, but they were voted down. The Erastians did not quite get everything that they wanted, but they were mostly satisfied with the results of it because it did once again state that the king was ultimately the one who called for synods and could exercise that level of control. It did not, however, state, because it's not true, that, that the king is the head of the church. The standards state that Christ is the head of the church. So the Erastians did not get that much in. Well, in any event, it was a Presbyterian document, Presbyterian church government. It was presented to the Parliament, was accepted, was ratified in England, and then ratified the next year in Scotland. And thus, in theory, it was supposed to become the form of church government that connected the church in all the United Kingdom. So Wales, England, Scotland, and Ireland were all supposed to have this one system of reformed worship and polity and theology. The problem is that at the time... It was ratified. The king was losing the war. Parliament was winning the war. But the man who was in charge of Parliament's armies, does anybody know what his name was? Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell. Now, Oliver Cromwell started out as a Presbyterian. Then he came under the influence of a theologian by the name of John Owen. And Owen was a Congregationalist, i.e. an Independent. And Owen managed to persuade Cromwell rather effectively that he should be an Independent as well and that he should uphold the idea of independency. Cromwell, when his forces finally won, the New Model Army, and the king was imprisoned, 
eventually ended up purging the parliament. The parliament was mostly Presbyterian, and he purged it, and he left what was called the rump, and it was mostly independents, levelers, revolutionaries for the time, not like Marxists that we would think of today, but men like that within the parliament, mostly men who would do his bidding. So although the kingdom had voted to implement this system of worship, in essence, Oliver Cromwell turned it over, and he said, no, we're going to have independency. Every congregation gets to pick its own system. You Presbyterians can have your Presbyterian system of government. You can ordain your ministers and so on, but there's no way you're going to tell the Congregationalists what to do. And so as long as you're operating basically Orthodox Christianity, you can continue going as, as you were before. He also allowed to a certain extent the Episcopal or the Anglican churches to continue on, although certain things that they used to do they took away. For instance, during the period of what became known as the Republic within England, or the interregnum period between the two kings, they outlawed things like Christmas. Christmas celebrations were not allowed, even if you were in a, even if you were an Episcopal church, you weren't allowed to do that kind of thing. And certainly Roman Catholicism was not allowed at that point in time. But as long as you were basically reformed in your convictions and you kept within certain guidelines that the government set, you could continue on. Now, what happened in 1660 was, well, first, Oliver Cromwell died. I believe it was 1658, wasn't it, that he died? Uh, Cromwell had not wanted to be the king. He had said, I, I'm not going to accept the crown. And his son, Richard, became the next Lord Protector of the Republic. Now, at this point, it wasn't really a republic because it was essentially a military dictatorship. The army made all the final decisions, and the parliament was essentially under their thumb. The people had gotten sick of this situation. They actually had gotten to the point where they wanted the king back. Okay, So they figured, well, it would be better to have Charles's son than to continue on under the Republic. And so there was a big movement to bring the king back. And General Monk, who had been one of the most powerful generals in the New Model Army, was in favor of bringing the king back. He did bring the king back in 1660. You had the Restoration. And one of the things that had happened during the period in which the king's son, Charles II, was out of power, is he made lots and lots of promises. He said anything to get back into power. He told the Scots that I'll sign the Solemn League and Covenant and I'll support the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Westminster Standards. When he was offered the crown back, one of the things that they said is, now you can't come in here like a bull in a tea shop and immediately destroy the worship of all of these. One thing that we do want to preserve is freedom of religion, the freedom of religion that we have at the moment. Charles said, of course, of course, I'll, I'll certainly respect that. And he comes back in, and immediately they begin pressing for articles of uniformity. Okay, He wants uniformity in the practice of the churches, because he's not going to have all of these churches deciding for themselves how they're going to worship. Uh, he essentially wants episcopacy reinstated. But they say, okay, we'll have a conference at Savoy, and we'll have... We'll have the Episcopalians, the guys who came back with me, the Church of England guys, meet with all of you independents and Presbyterians, and we'll see if we can work out a compromise. Well, the compromise they worked out is you will become Episcopalians or you will be kicked out of the country. How's that work? And the guys said, we don't like that so much. And they said, tough. In 1662, they pass the Act of Uniformity. Yeah, yes, absolutely. I think you need to explain what Savoy is, because Savoy is a country in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, Savoy here is a palace right. on the outer edges, on the west side of London, on the Thames. It's one of the, um, uh, one of the archbishop's palaces, as I understood, or at the time, wasn't it, at that point? I think it was a king's palace. Okay, one of the king's palaces. It, but It's important because there was a declaration written in Savoy, the Savoy Declaration, which unified the Congregationalists. Unified the Congregationalists, and which is approximately the uh, Westminster Confession, apart mm -hmm. from yeah, I was, gonna, I was actually going to get to the Savoy Declaration, but the Savoy Conference was, was different. What happened, though, was in 1662, the Episcopalians passed the Act of Uniformity, and basically what they do is they say this. You have got to be Episcopalian. You've got to use the Book of Common Prayer. The Book of Common Prayer was basically a, a book that you were to read through 
every year. It had all of the church year, the seasons, and you had collects that you were supposed to read to the congregation, and they had their part they were supposed to read back. Then you had homilies that you were supposed to read every year. And essentially, it was, it, it was a liturgical form of worship. How many of you have been in liturgical churches? Very high church. Okay. Only Joy and Anne. Joy and Anne, you've been in liturgy. Anybody been in a, a Roman Catholic church before? Okay, you've been in a liturgical church. Everything is programmed. Nothing's going to happen out of the ordinary. Okay? And certainly what the king didn't want was them preaching sermons extempore at the time. Okay? What they wanted was them to read the book so they knew what these guys were going to say because they didn't want them saying things that the king disagreed with. So they were forced to accept the Book of Common Prayer. They were forced to adopt vestments. They were forced to adopt Episcopal ordination, that is ordination by bishops. And if they'd been ordained during the interregnum, the time between Charles I and Charles II in a presbytery, they had to be reordained again. Now, if they didn't accept the Articles of Uniformity, there was a bunch of other things that they had to... Uh, in fact, they wrote it as, as much as they could in order to, to make sure that the Puritans couldn't sign it. If they'd felt that there was anything that a Puritan could accept, they would have gotten rid of it because they wanted all the Puritans out of the Church of England. And so if you didn't sign the Articles of Uniformity in 1662, you were kicked out of your church. And they also, then they passed a five-mile rule. You could not resign within five miles of your old parish because what they found was that the people, okay, having been deprived of their minister, would actually go and meet with them in their homes. And so the king's men were installed in these churches that had, where they'd taken Puritans out and put, you know, King's Episcopalian ministers in to read the Book of Common Prayer, and they would find their church was empty on Sunday. What on earth is going on? Well, what was going on was the people were going and visiting their old minister and hearing the word from him. And so the king couldn't have this. So he passed a law saying that the uh, ministers could not reside within five miles of their old parish because the thinking was nobody was going to walk more than five miles to, uh, to hear the word of God. A terrible situation. 2,000 ministers were ejected from their posts, all of the godliest ministers in England. And British religion never really recovered from that particular blow. It went from a high point in about 1660 to almost entirely devoid of religion by the 18th century when it pulled in. So terrible, terrible blow. Now, in Scotland, things were different. But we'll talk about Scotland in just a second, just to get to something that Earphone was mentioning. The Congregationalists obviously were not happy with the Westminster Confession of Faith as it was written. So they created an amended form of the Westminster Confession of Religion called the Savoy Declaration, which took out the connectionalism, took out the church government parts that they objected to, but was essentially the Westminster Confession. Baptists, how do you think they felt about the Westminster Confession? They mostly liked it, disagreed with the... Yes, they, they, weren't so, they weren't so hot on the connectionalist parts, and they weren't so hot on the so church government again, and they were not very happy about what it said about baptism. So they created the London Baptist Confession, which was signed in 1689. Another version was created and signed, which essentially followed the same confession in Philadelphia a little while later, called the Philadelphia Confession of Faith. So London Baptist Confession... Philadelphia Confession are essentially the same as the Westminster Confession with amendments on in the area of church government and baptism. If you're ever traveling and you're looking for a church, if you can find a Reformed Baptist church that holds the London Baptist Confession, you've essentially got Presbyterians who practice believers' baptism for the most part. So that's one of the things you can do. All right. In Scotland, matters are different. The Scots have been Presbyterian now by the time Charles II comes back for over 100 years. They fought two wars to stop episcopacy being forced upon them successfully, and so they are not very happy with the idea that Charles II propagates that all the churches in the United Kingdom now have to be Episcopalian. So they once again, many of them, stand against this. And the king, instead of fighting them openly, goes the easier route and uses influence, bribery, and so on to get ministers to moderate their positions and accept a partial implementation of episcopacy. By this time, many Scots are tired of the wars. You've got to remember that uh, there have been wars now fought in Scotland for close to 30 years. It's a long time to be in a state of unrest, and many of them simply want peace in the land, so they're looking for some sort of accommodation. However, the Covenanters, how many of you remember the, are familiar with the name of the Covenanters? The Covenanters stand strong against uh, this idea that the king, particularly the one thing that the Covenanters detested even more 
Then the imposition of what they felt was a non-biblical system of, uh, of worship and church government was the declaration that the king was the head of the church because they felt that it was a blasphemous decrowning of the real head of the church. Okay, so they stood against this. Some of them armed themselves and fought against the king's forces. How do you think they did? Well, pretty badly. They had a couple of victories, but eventually they were rolled over. And from that point onward, from the point of Charles II, so pretty much 1662 to 1688, are referred to as the killing times, the times when the Covenanters were hunted down as traitors because they would not declare that the king was the head of the church and put to death. But they remained fiercely loyal to the Westminster Confession and to the Solemn League and Covenant and would not change. Many of them were martyred and are remembered to this day. Some of the best Scottish ministers from the 17th century ended up dying for their faith. And a lot of common Scots ended up dying for their faith as well. They used to be willing to, I mean, this is a mark of their faith. They weren't allowed to meet in the churches, obviously. And many of their houses were well known as well, and their farms, so they couldn't meet in there either. So they used to meet out on the moors. They would meet in the cold, in the rain, and uh, in the wind, and they would be willing to go out and assemble under those circumstances to hear the word of God preached. So an amazing amount of faith. And we're talking about men, women, and children. For instance, you guys know the, the story of the Solway martyrs, right? Margaret, do you know the story of the two Margarets? What happened to young Margaret? Margaret Wilson. Do you know? good summary. Two, two older Margarets, the Wigtown Margarets they're called. One was an old lady, one was 17, but neither of them would give in and say that the king was the head of the church. And so they were staked out in the Solway. The Solway is a tidal river, so when the tide comes in, it gets high, and when the tide goes out, it becomes mudflats. And they, uh, the tide came in and gradually, you know, raised up and, and drowned the two of them. But Margaret, both Margarets, stayed firm, faith, and refused to give in to the very end. Well, yes. You were mentioning that Charles II was a crypto-Roman Catholic. Absolutely, yeah. We're going to get to actually James II and talk about crypto-Catholicism. Yes. And aren't there some people or some churches that still hold to the Solomon Covenant? Absolutely. In fact, there's a denomination within the United States that uh, still holds technically to the Solomon Covenant, which is the RPCNA. Now, I'm not absolutely positive about this, but I'm, I, I don't believe that the RPCNA any longer feels that the King of England should be the, the head of... Right. Right. So it used to be the case that they felt that the King of England should be the head of the American state. Well, anyway, the RPCNA still holds the Solemn League and Covenant. There are some Steelites who also, various places, still hold to that uh, particular position. Free Church of Scotland continuing, they would be uh, covenanters. They're not very large, obviously. There's, they've got a few congregations, some well-known ones, as a matter of fact, in places like South Carolina, but there are other congregations that still hold to that. All right, so Presbyterianism comes to the United States, mostly through Scots-Irish. These were people who settled first in Ireland and then emigrated to the United States, men like Maccamee. And they formed presbyteries on the East Coast, uh, particularly in Philadelphia and Maryland, well, not Philadelphia, particularly in Pennsylvania and Maryland. The first major presbytery in the United States was the Presbytery of Philadelphia. Now, the Presbyterians of Scotland had accepted the Westminster Confession of Faith, but it was by no means assured that the Presbyterians in the United States would accept the Westminster Confession of Faith. So they had an adopting act an adopting convention in 1729, and they did adopt all of those articles except for the articles that specifically said that the king could call a synod. They objected to them, and they also objected, believe it or not, to the directory of worship. Not sure why the 1729 assembly did that, but they didn't want to embrace the directory for public worship. But in any event, then after the American Revolution, the American Presbyterians 
amended the Westminster Confession in 1789 and produced a form of the Confession that had all of the, as many of the sections in the Confession that touch on the authority of the king deleted. Also, they deleted the section that said that the Pope was the Antichrist. They felt that he was an Antichrist, small a, but saying that he was the Antichrist was going further than the scripture allowed for. So the version of the Westminster Confession of Faith that we use is the version that was adopted in 1789. Now, the, uh, the Presbyterian denominations that hold to the Solemn League and Covenant use the old 1648 version of the Westminster Confession of Faith with all the statements about the king being the head of the church and the pope being the Antichrist and so on. All right, questions about that? I've, I know I've skimmed over the top, but I just wanted to give you kind of a... Um, Yes, Paul. Presbyterian Press, the screen version is the 1649? 1648 version, yep. Yep, yep. If you have a version from, yeah, the, usually if you have a version that was printed in Scotland or printed in England, you've got a 1648 version. If you've got one that was printed by the PCA or the OPC or the ARP, you've got a 1789 version of the, um, the Westminster Confession. Any other questions? All right. Let's start then with the doctrine that these men felt was taught in Scripture. You should all have a copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 1 of the Holy Scripture. Do you? Good. Excellent. All right. Now, for my first demonstration, before we get down to the meat of this, I'm going to need two kids who don't know each other very well. All right, since my kids' hands are up, I'll take Victor. That means, JC, you're out of the running. I'm sorry. I need somebody else who... All right. Yes. Come on up. We'll have Leanne and Victor. All right. Now, I didn't prompt you or tell you I was going to do this before, right? Good. Okay. Victor, I want you to tell me Leanne's favorite color. Quick. All right, Leanne, I want you to tell me Victor's favorite color. Quick. Red. All right. What I need you to do now is to read his mind and tell me the answer. Don't say anything. Okay? What do you mean you can't do that? Okay, Victor, Victor, you're going to have to read her mind and get the answer. Uh, okay, mind reading not very good here. All right. Well, Leanne, I'll, let's try something more radical. I'll ask you, what is your favorite color? Green. Okay. Victor, what is your favorite color? Green. Amazing. And I didn't set that up in any way. All right, thank you very much for your help. You can go back and, uh, and sit in your seats now. All right. Now, I know that didn't seem to make much sense at all, but there was a reason that I did it. Okay. Victor, did he know instinctively through some sort of extrasensory sense organ <laughs> what Leanne's favorite color was? No. Was Leanne able to employ her greater women's intuition to figure out what Victor's favorite color was? No. She even... And I could see that she was using some, some investigative skills here. She even guessed that his favorite color was red because he's wearing red, which, you know, that's not a bad, it's not a bad idea. But the reason that I did that, the reason I wanted to do that demonstration here was because I wanted to get to the heart of a fundamental misunderstanding that many Christians have, which is this, that they can figure out what God is thinking by themselves. They can figure out what God likes by themselves, that they can have knowledge of God's mind and desires without God telling them, that they have some way of climbing into the mind of God and knowing for certain various things. So my God wouldn't X, people would say. My God wouldn't do that, and so on, as though they have some knowledge of the will of God. Now, you can have knowledge of what you're thinking, but the only way that you can have knowledge of what somebody else is thinking, another mind is thinking, is if they tell you, if they reveal it to you. Okay, and that's what makes revelation so important. We instantly had good knowledge of what Victor and Leanne were thinking only after they told us, only after they revealed these things to us. And we can only know about God if he chooses to reveal himself to us. Now, God, we will find, has revealed himself to man in two different ways. He's revealed himself to man through natural and sometimes general and special revelation. And we'll talk about the differences 
between those two in a second. This one gives us knowledge, but it's not inerrant, and we can misread it very badly, and it's also distinctly incomplete. This one is inerrant and absolutely complete. We'll talk about what the difference between them is in a moment. All right. Somebody who has their Westminster Confession of Faith sheet, start reading number one for us, up to the first one. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of His will which is necessary unto salvation. Okay, stop, stop there. The light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men unexcusable. Now, there, the authors of the Westminster Confession of Faith, and, and one of the things that we should expect is that they're constantly summarizing the teaching of Scripture. They're not coming up with new doctrines themselves and forcing them on Scripture. They're saying, in essence, what Scripture tells us. So if we look, for instance, open your Bibles to Romans 1. Somebody go ahead and read Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth against unrighteousness. Okay, and then going on, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Okay, some very important things are being told to us there by Paul. The Bible again and again tells us that nature screams at us that there is a God, that we have a creator. God, I mean, we sing, God all nature sings thy glory. We read in Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the glory of God that nature itself, the creation itself, declares to mankind that there is a God who has created all things, that he is good, that he is all-powerful. If he can put the stars in their places, if he can create trees and animals and men and so on, then we know that this God is distinctly powerful. And we can tell also from his creation that he is good because he has made such great provision for his people. I would argue that we can tell from the creation also that something has gone profoundly wrong with the creation. By our fallen nature, we can uh, learn that, uh, for instance, we are fallen by the way we act. But what do we do with this knowledge of God? What do we naturally do with this knowledge of God? Do we say, yay, God? We suppress the knowledge of God. Okay? We suppress the knowledge of nature's God, the true knowledge of God, and instead we go ahead and plunge into idolatry. Now, why would we suppress the nature, uh, the knowledge of God? Because we hate him, yeah. Because we're at war with God. We're rebels. We're enemies of God. If you're uh, somebody's enemy, do you like them? No. If you're somebody's enemy, you're at war with them, right? And we're rebels against our God. So we suppress that knowledge. We hold it down. We don't want to. Uh, we we don't want to accept it. But that knowledge leaves us inexcusable. It's not just the knowledge outside of us, it's the knowledge within us, within our unconscious, pricking us, that tells us there's a God, that tells us we're not created tabula rasa. Logic, for instance, will tell us that there is a God, that things do not spring into being from nothing. William Lane Craig, who is an apologist, will occasionally use the example of, uh, he'll point out to people, you know, we come up with these mythical fairy tales to explain creation of all things. All right, at one time, kids, there was nothing, and then suddenly everything came out of nothing. Okay, so at one point in time, there was absolutely nothing. Well, if at one point in time there was absolutely nothing, what would you expect there to be today? Nothing, because from nothing comes nothing. Yes, <laughs> from nothing comes something. You we suddenly we switch into this bizarre mythological system of understanding, okay, in order to explain away God. All right? We instinctively know from nothing comes nothing. And he uses this example. He says, none of you, I know this, instinctively are afraid that a hippopotamus has suddenly materialized in your apartment or home and is currently ripping up your furniture. None of you are tempted to run home and get rid of this hippopotamus that has appeared in your living room. 
things don't appear out of nowhere. Life doesn't arise from non-life. You don't have a, you know, I don't set aside a jar, you know, I don't fill up jars with absolutely nothing, sucking out all the oxygen and creating a perfect void and put them on the shelves and say, I'm waiting for food to appear. Because, you know, that's the way the universe and everything in it came into existence. At one point there was nothing and then suddenly, boom, everything. So why not? Food can come from nothing. You know, we don't think that way. Because God has given us reasonable natures. We're not morons because there is a God. But yet we become morons when it comes to explaining where we and everything in the universe came from. Why? Not because there isn't enough evidence. There is enough evidence. And as I said in a sermon a little while ago, as we're getting down to the molecular structure of cells and finding out things that Darwin and his contemporaries never knew, we are finding virtually, you know, made by God, stamped right in the center of the cell. They're irreducibly complex. There's just no way these things could suddenly have, have put themselves together. Amino acids can't assemble themselves without DNA and so on. So we're, we're coming to a point now where we really have to go crazy, you know, and, and assume things that are utterly impossible in order to push God away. But that's always been our nature. And that's what Paul says in Romans 1.18. So we know that there is a God, but we deny him. We don't want to glorify him. And as a result, our hearts are darkened. We become foolish in our thinking. And instead of worshiping God, what do we worship? We worship the creatures. We worship the creation. We worship the things that we can reach out and touch. We worship money, power. We create a, a, you know, a myriad of different idols. We'll bow down before anything before we'll bow down before God. And we say to these things, save us. And can they save us? Yeah, no. no. So we create a false religion. And can that religion help us at all, kids? No, no, no false religion can ever help anybody. And it leads, the bad beliefs that we have lead to all sorts of bad behavior, and it leaves us inexcusable. Going on, yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary unto salvation? All right, the thing is, we know there's a God, but does nature tell us how to be saved? The trees really, I mean, they tell us there's a good God, there's, that he's almighty and all-powerful, but they don't tell us how to approach him, do they? They don't tell us what he wants from us. They don't tell us what we need to do in order to be reconciled to him. So it leaves us kind of in a, in a bind, doesn't it? It tells us there's a God, but it doesn't tell us how to be saved. So if he's a good God and we can't figure out how to be saved from the stuff that we see in creation, what is a good God going to do? Tell us exactly. He's not going to say, okay, <laughs> you've got to figure out what my favorite color is. And I'm not going to tell you if you guess right. That's not what a good God does. A good God rather reveals his will to us. He reveals his mind to us. He speaks to us. He lisps to us. So, and the nice thing is that because we were created in his image, we can understand him when he speaks to us. He makes it possible for us to know his mind. All right? Therefore, we read, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church... What do they mean by to reveal his will at diverse times and in sundry manners? What do you think? Well, he told Adam and Eve. He spoke directly to them in the garden. What are some of the other times that God spoke to men? Yes, Joy? Mm-hmm. Prophets, dreams, signs, uh, wonders, things like that. He does things that ordinary men cannot do. He authenticates his messengers as well. This is something else that we're going to see. One of the ways that we can tell a prophet is that, first off, what a prophet says will come to pass, does come to pass. That's a prophet who the Lord is speaking through. Secondly, many of the prophets were authenticated by the fact that they could do miracles, that they could do signs and wonders. I was teaching last night at Carolina Bible College about Islam. And one of the things about Muhammad was he said that Gabriel had appeared to him in a cave and had given him revelation, secret knowledge from God, but it was always on the, you got to trust me. He did. Now, you're not going to be able to see Gabriel, and you're not going to be able to see me do any miracles, but you've got to take my word for it that he did, Okay. Does God reveal himself like that, generally speaking, in the Bible? When he spoke in the Bible, was it like that? It happened in a cave, nobody else saw, and there were no authenticating miracles. No. 
That's not the way it worked usually. For instance, we have situations like Elijah on Mount Carmel. You remember, you've got the prophets of Baal. And they are, it's, it's essentially a showdown between the real God and the false God. Okay, you've got Yahweh versus Baal. And there's one prophet of Yahweh. His name is Elijah. And you've got how many prophets of Baal? 400 prophets of Baal. And they build their altar and they jump around and they scream and they call on Baal. And the idea is that the true God will burn up the sacrifice. Does Baal answer? Why? Because he doesn't exist. Can't speak through his people. Now, when Elijah calls upon God, does he answer? Man, does he? And the people, what do they say? The Lord, he is God. You know, they all nod their heads. And for about 15 minutes, they all believe in the Lord. I mean, it's, it's so sad to see what happens in the history of uh, the kingdom of Israel or the history of the kingdom of God's people in every year. But he reveals himself in such a way that no one can deny it. And that happens again and again. Moses, how was, give me some of the things that authenticated Moses as his messenger. In fact, before Moses even went and spoke to Pharaoh, he said, wait a minute. I come to the people and I say, I've got a message for you from God. What are they going to say? Yes, in the British parlance, pull the other one. It's got bells on, as my mother would say. The idea is, you're pulling our leg. We don't believe you. It's not real. It's not true. Because you could have just gone into the desert, had your crazy experience in a cave, come back and told us, oh, God has spoken through me. What's to, what's to prove what you're saying? But God authenticates his messenger Moses with things like, what are some of the things that he was able to do? The rod became a snake. What else? His hand becoming leprous when he put it in and pulled it out. And then, of course, the plagues that God did through Moses. And then later on, we have the parting of the Red Sea. All of these things were not merely magic tricks meant to impress people. They were authenticating God's messenger. Did he do that in the New Testament as well? Yes, he did. In fact, when Peter stands up and preaches in Acts chapter 2, he doesn't say, trust me, Jesus really was resurrected. He talks about the miracles of Christ, the things that this man did in your presence. You all saw them. That's one of the things that he brings to, to bear on these people. And they can't go and get the body of Jesus Christ because he really was resurrected. So God reveals his will through signs, wonders, messengers, and he authenticates them. And because he's the God of creation, he's able to come into his creation and do things that nobody else could do. All right? And we should expect that. People say, well, I can't believe the Bible because it's full of miracles. But then we need to answer by saying this. First off, if this is the God who created the universe, for him it's not a miracle. Okay, For him to enter into his creation and do whatever he wants is, is nothing. All right. And secondly, we should expect miracles if it really is true revealed religion from the God who created heavens and the heavens and the earth, because he's going to authenticate his actions. Now, they'll say, well, nobody can do miracles. Well, yes, no, you and I can't do miracles, but God can, because he's not outside of some sort of, you know, mythical box constructed by materialists that prevents people from doing miracles. Well, you can't do miracles. Well, yes, of course I can't do miracles, because I am not one of God's prophets and messengers. I am not somebody who needs to do miracles. And incidentally, I would say that God still is doing amazing miracles in the world. The greatest miracle that he does on a regular basis is converting people, taking you know dead men who hate the gospel and making them into believers. All right, so he reveals his, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare his will unto his church. And afterwards, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same wholly unto writing. All right. He spoke through prophets. He spoke through messengers. He gave signs and so on. But there was a time coming when his revelation, his special revelation, his revelation of his will would be complete when we would have everything that was necessary to be known in order to be saved. Now, oral transmission. Any of you guys ever played telephone? I do it with the kids, but it would take too long. Yeah, do, do the telephone game. Okay. Any of you ever played telephone? Yes? 
Okay. You start out with one person, you give them the long message, and by the time it gets over here, it's pretty mangled, right? Because we make mistakes, all right? God, did he want his word to be transmitted with mistakes? No. He therefore made sure that we had a sure record, something that men couldn't mess up, something that was inscripturated, written down, okay? It's very difficult for me to remember a long series of instructions, but if you write it down for me, it becomes much easier. He also inscripturated it so that it couldn't be messed with, couldn't be filled with error, something that was true and good and trustworthy, and something that was complete, something that the people would know contained. So if you take a look, for instance, at 2 Timothy 3.16, we hear Paul summing up Scripture and saying this. Somebody read 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. So what is that? That's telling us that Scripture is given by who? Man and God? Is it a combination of the two? No, it's, it's given by God, and it's so that the man of God may be perfect, complete. So we're talking about scripture that is not only God-given, or what we would call inspired, but also complete. Two doctrines are actually being taught to us in those verses. First off, the inspiration of scripture. The word there that's used for inspired all scriptures inspired is theopnustos and actually it's closer to expired because it means theopnustos literally means God breathed all scripture is breathed out by God and if you have it does it say we need anything else no it is complete it's teaching us an important doctrine which is the sufficiency of scripture a lot of people think that scripture is not enough the Roman Catholic Church teaches for instance well when you've got scripture in your hand you don't have enough this is not enough for you to be a thoroughly equipped Christian. What else do you need? You need tradition. You need the teachings of the church. You need us to interpret and explain what this means in the first place for you. So if you've got scripture, oh, you're, you don't have enough. Then there are others who say, well, yeah, this is, this is good, but you know, we need to add to it. Some people, there's liberals, for instance, who say, well, you know, it's, it's got somewhere in there, it's got the word of God. Uh, for instance, when uh, Jesus says, consider the lilies, that's, that sounds like God speaking. But when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to them, the Father, but by me, we know that's not God speaking, because that's exclusive. And God loves everybody, and that would mean that Muslims don't go to heaven, and that's not right. So God couldn't have meant that. So we know that God's word is somewhere in there, but also it's kind of old-fashioned, isn't it? So we need to update it and modernize it and bring it into line with modern thinking and modern mores. For instance, people back then, <laughs> they thought, get this, that marriage could only be between a man and a woman for life. Isn't that silly? No, obviously it's not silly, but that's what people believe. So they feel that the word of God has to be amended, changed, edited, updated, and so on. It's certainly not complete. It needs the wisdom and skill of men in order to uh, improve upon it and make it better. So that's one of the ways in which they deny the sufficiency of Scripture. But we know from what Paul teaches us and from what Scripture teaches about itself, from what God teaches us through his word, that when we have the word of God, do we have a book that's full of errors? full of the words of men. No. no. We have a book that is inspired of God. So if we turn to, for instance, 2 Peter 1.21. Victor, do you remember what 2 Peter 1.21 says? Okay. Peter, first off, says that he knows he's going to die. He's about to put off his earthly tent. And he says, don't worry, though. I'm going to leave you with something that will continue to direct you after I'm gone. And then he goes on to say, knowing this, and I'm reading in verse 20, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In other words, if you're asking yourself the question, is Scripture a combination of the words of men and the words of God? The answer is no. It was holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the, the Holy Spirit. And there we have the idea of plenary verbal inspiration. Every word of God, every word of the Bible, rather, is the word of God. 
Now, did men write the Bible or did it fall out of the air complete? Men wrote the Bible. So therefore, God used men where they were, using their characters, their idioms, their expressions, in order to write his word and to give us an, an inspired scripture that was complete. He moved in and through men to create something that was what we needed in order to know him and in order to be assured that we could be saved by him and through him and through his son's working. Now, why did we need this? Why did we need the scriptures to be written down? And? And? Uh -huh. There's an S word, too, where sinful we're sinful and what might we try to do with the word of god yes we might try to corrupt it and change it and make it work for us yeah all the time unfortunately so he committed it wholly to writing and it makes it therefore most necessary which maketh the holy scripture to be most necessary those former ways of god's revealing his will unto his people now being now ceased yes you said that the invention of a printing press the first version of the bible was very it was uh, had stuff like working towards um, sync, uh, salvation and things of that nature? Right. Yes, Dr. How do you know that you have the complete version of the Bible unless you have the original version of the Bible? Okay. And we'll get to that when we're talking about the books of the Bible. But the short answer, Andrew, is this. The Vulgate a Bible contained all of the books of the Bible that we would today accept as, as books of the Bible. The problem with the Vulgate Bible was not in terms of which books were selected to go into it. The problem with the Vulgate Bible was the translation, the process of moving from Greek to Latin, for instance, and some of the choices of the words that were made. Taking a word like the Greek diakosune, which means a forensic declaration, and translating it with justificare, which means a process. That's a problem. There were problems there. But even looking at the Vulgate Bible, we can still read it and understand the Word of God and have mostly what we need to understand. It's not a perfect translation. But it's not a perfectly imperfect translation, if you know what I mean. It's not an absolutely imperfect translation. So people could still come to the saving relationship with Christ through that? Through the use of the Vulgate Bible, even. And they did. Yeah, and we'll talk about how did the books of the Bible get into the Bible. And I've unfortunately run down the clock on uh, number one. But under the name of the Holy Scripture, or the Word of God written, are now contained all the books of the Old Testament and New Testament, which are these. And then they go through the list of the books, and they give us the how many books? 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. Now, if you read Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, how did they come up with the 66 books of the Bible? Exactly. They said that what happened was that at Nicaea, Constantine, okay, threw out all of the books that he didn't like and then burned them. And that was how uh, we got the 66 books of the Bible, rather than the authentic truth that Dan Brown would have us believe that's not it's poppycock it's ridiculous it's poppycock incidentally means utter bunk I was asked that after a sermon once what's utter I was teaching actually I was teaching at Carolina Bible College and one of those students asked that raised their hand and I said any questions and he said yeah what is utter poppycock exactly I was like bunk garbage rubbish exactly all right we'll start next week on talking about how it was that the 66 books of the Bible were accepted, but I do want to, to give you a couple of tidbits to get you ready for that discussion in a little while. First off, the 66 books of the Bible, what languages were they written in? Greek and Hebrew. And all of them were written, okay, all of the books of the Old Testament were written up to the point where there's a period of silence between Malachi and Matthew of roughly how long? 400 years of silence, that's right. Between Malachi and Matthew. Now, did that mean nobody was writing during those 400 years? People were writing, but God was not speaking to his people during those 400 years of silence. A number of books were written in the 400-year period called the Apocrypha. The Apocryphal books include Wisdom of Solomon, a bunch of things were appended to Daniel, like the story of Bel and the Dragon, the book of Tobit, Esdras, first and second, well, first, second, and third Maccabees were written during that period as well. Now, these were called apocryphal books. Many things that distinguish them. First off, they come, they all come after Malachi. Secondly, they're not written in Hebrew. 
They're written in Greek. They also contain things, while they contain some things that are good in an okay sort of way. Uh, for instance, the Wisdom of Solomon has some good stuff in it. You can immediately see in these books the influence of Greek philosophy, particularly proto-Gnosticism beginning to creep in, uh, Greek thoughts about the world. They don't fit with the other books. They teach doctrines that are not in keeping with the other books. And so therefore, if we align them or attempt to align them with the other books, they don't match up. They have a different content, a different language, a different theme than these other books. They don't fit in with the, uh, the, the teaching of the Old Testament. And the Jews themselves always dismissed the Apocrypha as being a genuine part of the Tanakh, that is, the Law and the Prophets, the, the Word of God together. We also see that the Apostles did not quote from the Apocrypha. Jesus doesn't quote from the Apocrypha. Did the Apostles and Christ quote from the other books? of the? Did they, does, does he quote from the 39 books of the Old Testament, Howard? Yes, he does. Jay? Isn't there a scripture in Jude where he's quoting from the There's an argument, a contention going on. Is Jude actually quoting from Enoch in where you have the section over the wrestling over the body of Daniel? I'll deal with that next week, but most Bible scholars... First off, say it doesn't follow Enoch verbatim. Okay, and secondly, one of the interesting points that's made is this: just because Enoch contains it doesn't necessarily mean that it's false. In other words, if Enoch contains the story of the wrestling, okay, over Moses's body, doesn't mean it didn't happen. Okay, there may have been an oral tradition that it actually did happen. So if it's in Jude, we know it's true. I'll get back to that later on. So, the books of the Apocrypha are not quoted by the uh, apostles, with possible exception of Jude there, but certainly not quoted by Christ, not quoted by Paul, and not considered by the Jews to be legitimate. Last, I do want to talk about the pseudopigraphal books, and particularly what are called the Nag Hammadi texts, or Gnostic Gospels. I'll close on this. The Nag Hammadi texts. All right, all of you have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? Did the Dead Sea Scrolls contain any Gospels? Why not? Because they hadn't been written yet. Okay, the Dead Sea Scrolls were actually probably written by Essenes. They're books of the Old Testament. They were probably written, as I said, by the Essene community, which was a militant Jewish group, and they were buried in caves in Palestine when scrolls wore out in Old Testament Israel. They didn't just throw them away. Why? Because they were sacred. They contained the name of God, and it would have been a considered a violation of the Third Commandment to simply throw them away or burn them. So what they used to do is bury them in the same way that you would bury bones. You put them in ossuaries, and you sealed them up in caves. And a shepherd boy discovered them. He threw a rock. He heard pottery breaking, and he went and he examined it, and they found this treasure trove of Old Testament books in these old scrolls that have been sealed up in these caves. Wonderful copies. And one of the things that they found wonderfully as well is that by comparing these books, these first century and before versions of the Old Testament, they found that the text of the Old Testament is the same as the text of the Old Testament that we have today. So it helped to validate the Old Testament. But that's not the Nag Hammadi text. That's the Dead Sea Scrolls. If they're ever traveling in your area, go see them. Dead Sea Scrolls. The Nag Hammadi documents were discovered in 1948 in Egypt. They were written in Greek. They dated from the 200s through the late 300s. And they were written by Gnostics. They contained Gnostic Gospels. For instance, the Gospel of Thomas. When were the books of the New Testament written? Between roughly... 50 and 90 or so, okay? The Gnostic Gospels were written in the 200s. Any apostles alive in the 200s? No, not even John. And they convey Gnostic Greek teaching. They're essentially written, and they're called pseudopigrapha, which means pseudo, fake, pigrapha, name, fake names. They were written under false names. The reason that they were written under false names is that Gnostics figured out very quickly 
that if I write the gospel according to Jake, nobody's going to be very impressed by it. But if I write a gospel by an apostle who we don't have a gospel from, like Thomas, people are going to be impressed by that. Look, I just found the gospel of Thomas. Read this. And see, it teaches all of those things that I've been telling you about Jesus being a secret ascended master, wandering sage, mystic, that you didn't believe. So don't believe the Gospel of John. Believe the Gospel of Thomas. So that's the Nag Hammadi documents. They teach Gnostic teachings. They date from the 200s and 300s. The earliest Gnostic Gospels are at the end of the 100s, still well beyond the age of the apostles. The church never accepted them. The Gnostics were considered heretics throughout the church. There was constant quarreling going on with them. But how do moderns tend to feel about the Gospel of Thomas and the Gnostic manuscripts and so on? They are lost treasures. These are the lost books of the Bible. My Bible. The Bible I would have wanted. <laughs> you know, um, because it's Gospels written by natural man for natural men. One of the, the greatest things that I was ever taught as a, a student in seminary was by my pastor at the time. He said, if a teaching is easily accepted by the natural man, it's probably false. Okay? <laughs> Special revelation is something that's hard for the natural man to accept. Okay? It goes right against our tendencies. The Gospel of Thomas just fits in. I mean, you can sell this stuff on Oprah today. That's how well it, it works with the natural man's inclinations. So whenever you're, you're talking about the, the Gnostic Gospels, the secret ascended master Jesus, the you get to heaven through divine wisdom, if it sounds like Buddhism, it's, there's a reason for it in any event. So that's the Nag Hammadi texts. Now we'll talk about the actual text of the Bible, the books of the Bible, how we came to the conclusion that they should be included in the Bible next week. But that's one of the reasons why we don't accept the Apocrypha and why we don't accept the Gnostic Gospels as part of the Bible. All right. Any questions about that? Yes. In the 400 year span after Micah, you have the Apocrypha. Malachi. Uh, after sure. Malachi, you have the Apocrypha. Is the Apocrypha X, is that something totally different? Like, I thought the Gospel of Thomas was a part of the no, the, the Gospel of Thomas is not technically part of the Apocryphal. The Apocryphal books uh, were books written during that slice, that 400-year slice. They were written generally by Jewish scholars, but they were written in Greek. Most of them were composed in Alexandria. So for instance, Wisdom of Solomon was. Some of them, a couple of them were written in Aramaic, so they're not all in Greek. Bell and the Dragon, I believe, was originally in Aramaic. This was, I think, no, I don't want to, I'm not an Aramaic scholar, so I'm not going to think... Uh, I'm not going to step on any others, but the vast majority of them were written um, in Greek by those guys. So, no. And any other thoughts? Questions? All right. Let's go ahead and break in prayer.